Welcome back to another episode of the Sunday Puncher Podcast. This is, I am Angelo, I'm your host, and joining us this week is none other than Greg. Greg, you have been, um, this is your first appearance on this feed, but you've been doing some episodes with me in the past. Uh, you've had great reviews, so we thought we'd call you up to the big show and have you with us. And then Stu Mac is here. Stu Mac is one of the most popular people in our crew, despite having perhaps the lowest amount of podcast appearances. But Stu, always nice to have you guys on. Uh, well, both of you. And then also, this is take two of the podcast, okay? So we did this, uh, the full podcast yesterday. The audio had a little bit of issue, so rather than releasing it on the main feed and exposing the the episode and some of the issues to a lot of people, we decided, why don't we put it on the Patreon feed where maybe you guys will be a little nicer to us uh, and a little more forgiving if there are any issues. So we're going to give you guys a taste of it, but this won't be the full episode that you guys normally get. So Stu, Greg, welcome. How are you guys doing? Not bad. Uh, so Greg, the people here probably don't know this about you, but um, you have a little bit of an accent and it is because you are from... Just all the all the shitty Russian countries, I don't know, all the post-Soviet states. All right, well, I was expecting you to just say Ukraine and leave it there, but if you wanted to, you know, cut a heel promo on the former USSR satellite countries, okay, cool. And then Stu, where are you from? I, I think my accent is more obvious. Okay, well, I didn't know where it was when I met you, so do you want to tell people where you're actually from? From Scotland. All right, I, I would have guessed Ireland. Uh, anyway, guys, we saw a legend return to the the ring this past weekend. Nonito Donaire turned back the clocks at 38-year-old, walked up in there, and against Nordinu Bali, he absolutely blasted him out. And the question that I have is, were you shocked that this 38-year-old version of Nonito Donaire was able to knock out Nordinu Bali? Greg, what do you think? Um, honestly, I wasn't shocked at all. Uh, like, oh, uh, it's, it sounds like bullshit to say the result was obvious in hindsight, but like, you know, Obali was this pressure guy who had like chin questions from getting hit by the little Anawi brother. Um, so like him trying to pressure someone like Denaire, who's really sharp and accurate, was just always felt to me like a bit of a suicide mission. Like, so yeah, honestly, I'm not too shocked. Um, as impressed as I am by how sharp and powerful Denaire did look at his age. Stu, you were one of the most pessimistic boxing fans that I know. So surely, surely you were shocked by this outcome. Uh, I think I was quite a bit shocked, you know. Like it wasn't completely stunned, but at the same time, I thought, I thought the you know, at 38 for a flyweight, I thought Denaire would have slowed down enough and would have, you know, lost maybe a touch of his power for Obali to be clever enough to, you know, escape getting hurt like that, you know. Because, you know, he's he's a guy with amateur pedigree, you know. He's, um, I didn't think he would be that predictable. He has been in the past, but I thought he would mix up a bit more. I think every single time he was walking inside, he threw a jab and a straight, just... And you don't get away with that against a guy like Denaire. He's he's clever. He's you know that left hand is just so dangerous. Even still, for me, like Nordinu Bali is a guy that I have a lot of respect for. And like you can point out the amateur pedigree, and you know Stu, you mentioned that. And literally any conversation where you want to talk about Nordinu Bali, it starts with bringing up the amateur pedigree. But I just look at what he's done in the ring, and like. The, the pace that he fights with, his work rate, um, he's got a little bit of power. He makes guys work, and he's just a guy that has figured out. <laughs> he's a guy that has figured out how to win fights. And, like, on paper, if you really think about it, you have a guy in Ubali with not a ton of miles on the tread fighting a guy in Nonito Donaire who has been to hell and back in the ring. He's 38 years old. Surely, if Ubali would just push the pace on him, 
and maybe survive that first wave of Donaire powerful left hooks that came his way, where Donaire was no doubt going to try to take his head off, Ubali should have had this as an easy decision. And for me, I was shocked by what I saw. Like, the out, well, the method of victory, we should say, like the Donaire knocking Ubali out, that doesn't shock me. Like, okay, what, what possibly was going to happen here if Donaire won? I think, Greg, you had mentioned to me the, um, the like most likely predictable outcome for Donaire winning the fight was by a knockout. And Ubali was just predictable in a way that shocked me because I thought that that was going to work. And so I was pleasantly wrong because like as somebody who's followed Donaire for a really long time, I recently did a pretty deep dive into his career over on our Patreon feed. Like I had a lot invested in Nodito Donaire coming into this and wanted to see him turn back the clocks. Whether or not, you know, we could have a conversation of like, is this good for boxing when the 38 year old guy wins? I don't know. But um, I was just so shocked and really happy to see it. Were you guys happy that Donaire won the fight? I think just about everybody in boxing is happy about Donaire winning. It's not even, it's not even anything to do with Bali. Like Bali was a accessory, so to speak. I think just Donaire is probably one of the most universally loved people in boxing, and I think that it's something that someone in the chat said the other day. He's Irish, and he was at the um, the Donaire Frampton fight and after the fight, so Donaire's just lost the fight, he said, Does anyone want to come meet me in the pub? And then Donaire bought a pint for everybody there. You know, I think that just it, it speaks to Donaire's character and I think that it, that comes across to everybody who's heard him speak, has seen him on social media and I think that he's one of the few guys in boxing that receives next to no pushback, next to no hate, just because he's he's very lovable yeah i feel like you really have to like stretch and be a hipster to try to come up with a reason to like hate on the guy like you know it's 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 just touching to see him you know keep in touch with like all his past opponents you know check in on them and give them good wishes you know tell them keep keep up um keep trying if things don't go right for them Uh, like with frampton he's always um keeping um keeping in touch with him whether or not Frampton wins or loses a fight, he hears from Denaire. So, yeah, he's just always been one of the good guys in boxing. Like, one of those few people. Like, I think a lot of people in boxing, you can always wonder, like, whether they really are good or bad people behind closed doors. But I think Denaire is, like, one of maybe three people who you can confidently say is, like, a good guy behind the door. I'm trying to think of... Um, there were a couple of moments in Donaire's career, and I think this goes... For any fighter, really, but there were a couple of moments where it felt like maybe people had flipped on him, or maybe there was some polarization going on where there were people who try to hate on him. And like I'm speaking like outside of our normal hipsters who just hate on everything, like Greg. Uh and you know, there were those moments. But in general, even with that, over the course of this guy's career, which has spanned multiple decades, he has been one of the most lovable characters. And, I mean, what's also great about it is that he's been one of these, like, lovable characters in the sport of boxing, but he's also a dude that just knocks people out. Yeah, I think that's also, like, a factor in how, how popular he is. He's, he's just entertaining. You know, he's one of the few guys down at that weight who has power that can just hurt people in one punch you know that left took the amount of people that have just walked into it you know obviously Bali did on Saturday I think that that also just really helps when you're a very entertaining fighter I think it makes it you even easier to love because I think people will get a reaction watching him and go that was fun and then they'll see afterwards he's a really nice guy and then they'll you know they'll get a very strong <laughs> positive reaction to him you know there was a time in boxing where Nonito Donaire was pulling in over a million viewers when he was fighting on HBO during that really magical run that started with um, the Montiel knockout. Nonito Donaire like caught on in a way that no lighter weight class fighter has caught on since then. And you know, is he the best guy that we've seen in the past 15 years? I don't know. Probably not. Maybe. But what he has been able to do is he came in at the perfect time on the heels of the success of Manny Pacquiao 
And then he delivered with these explosive knockouts. And you add to the fact that he's just a great guy all around. I mean, it's come full circle. And like PBC's tried this, um, I, I don't know what we call it, but like they've ha- they've got these rehab projects where they get these guys like Donaire who maybe they, they're a little down on their luck. A guy like um, Guillermo Rigondo, or even to an extent, Luis Ortiz. And they throw them in fights and see like, what do we got with this guy? Do we have something? Can we maneuver him into a title shot? And then they maneuver him into a title shot. And the guys, uh, you know, some have really delivered like Rigondo. He has really delivered. And Donaire now has really delivered. We'll see where it goes going forward with um, Francisco Vargas, who's going to get his opportunity coming up soon. And it's, you know, it didn't work out for James Kirkland. But I, I really like this, um, I don't know, this gimmick that they've got going on. because I, th- I think there was a, another one of those kind of, to a lesser extent, on the undercard in Matias. I think Matias, um, he, he had the loss in the top rank card, obviously. He got dropped. He was already with now, PBC at that time. Was he? Yeah, he no. signed with PBC after the Dadashev fight. Uh, but you could say, like, Ugas is one of those guys. Okay, yeah, Ugas Another guy who's supposed to fight this Saturday, but that unfortunately isn't happening anymore. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Our friendly neighborhood, John Pascal. Oh, oh well. Um, if we wanted to talk about cheaters, you know, we're talking to see the crazy thing is we're talking about a guy, Nonito Donaire. Another thing that has endeared him over the course of his career is that he was the poster child of the 24-7, 365 year-round drug testing that VADA had implemented. And HBO put an enormous amount of backing into that. And they framed Donaire as the most pure and clean athlete in the sport because of what he subjected himself to and the sort of transparency that he was willing to have with his career. And then you want to talk about John Pascal? How you bring him up in the same sentence, Gray? I mean, my point is that they both were given great opportunities, but one of them obviously took it more so than the other. Oh, one of them took it. One of he took it three times. Yeah, is my point. He took it a lot more serious. Going back to the fight, though, like, what was the difference in this fight for Donaire? Because he clearly lost the first round. He probably lost the second round. And then in the third round, it seemed like the fight was over. What did you see out of Donaire that turned the fight around? I was actually kind of um, wondering about the same thing. So I went back to like uh, a few of Donaire's recent losses kind of to wonder, you know, what, what like, why is he looking better now? Like, is it, is it just they went down in weight? Because like, I mean, like, sure, that's part of it. But I think part of it is just if you compare it to how he looked uh, against Frampton and Magdaleno, in those fights, he was just looking for that bit, one big shot, and he was always letting those guys get off first and, you know, set their offense first, do what they wanted first, dictate the pace. But now here, he like, he was just a lot more proactive. He was always giving Ubali something to think about. He was never letting him get comfortable. It's like, he, whether or not Ubali was on the front or back foot, Denaire was doing something. It's He was never being lazy. He was never being complacent. Well, for you, Stu. I do think also... In this fight, I think Ubali was, as I said earlier, but I think he was unbelievably predictable. Like he, really, he looked. He, I thought he was. I thought he came in with the like the jab, the jab, and then that left hand straight over and over and over again. And I thought it looked very predictable. And I think that he thought he could just, he could just continue that over and over again. And I think that Donaire, you know, starting the second round, obviously, it came hit him really hard in the third him down twice but i think that denaire worked out and i think he was he was varying his shots more than he had in like the frampton fight like he he was throwing like a right hand straight a lot of the time you know as in addition to the the left hook to the body and to the head you know and the left hook was the one that caused the significant damage it put him down then but that right hand was you know keeping him off you know causing a bit of damage here setting it up I... and i think that that was something that you you didn't see as much in like the Frampton fight. Yeah, yeah you definitely. Go on, go on, Greg. Oh no, I was saying yeah, it definitely felt like it felt like there was like a few years where I feel like a lot of people, including myself, forgot how skilled Denaire really was because you know it's one thing to get old, but I feel like there was a few years where Denaire was kind of just 
um, falling in love with his power and kind of forgetting what made him good, I guess. Um, and now I feel like he's kind of returning to his roots and kind of finding these clever setups, mixing it up and um, finding, you know, ways to outfox younger fighters. Yeah, because I think in the Frampton fight, I remember, I think it was the 11th, I think, that Dinair absolutely clocked Frampton. Like, yeah, hit him really yeah, hard with that left that. hand. And Frampton, but he was already, Frampton was had 10 rounds at that point, so he just ran away. And he then did nothing in the 12th. He didn't throw much. And that, like, I think ultimately, I think that might have been a moment where Dinair realized, you know, even if I'm spending the whole time waiting in that left hand, it came there and I still lost because I did nothing apart from it. You know, and um, I yeah, think that I think also going back down in weight helped a lot, just because the you know the power was so much more evident against Bali than it was at any fight at one twenty two, and especially at one twenty five, because he was you know he was hitting fairly average fighters at one twenty five, one twenty one twenty six rather, um, with a, the left hand it wouldn't have much of an effect. I think like one thing that is really clear last night is you know one the, the right hand he was throwing the right hand with some conviction in that fight and i think that was a big weapon that really set up uh ubali to it's it's kind of like you know getting an o2 count on a batter you now can throw anything and you you have pitches to work with and i feel like that right hand last night was putting him up o2 in the count because ubali just didn't know what to expect at that point he knew that right hand was dangerous. He had to watch out for the left hook. Obviously, every fighter who's ever watched Nonito Donaire knows that left hook, you have to watch out for it. But once that right hand started to find a home, I think Ubali was just chicken dinner. And then the other thing, like, Greg, you said he had fallen in love with this power. I think that he's always been in love with this power. But what I think also is that he really just seemed like a guy that, not only was he in love with his power, but he also just thought that that was all he needed to do. The left hook, it, at some point, it had to land, and it was going to land, and nothing else needed to happen in the fights. And it's almost like watching maybe Deontay Wilder sometimes, where he knows, like, I, I have one shot, it's the right hand, and if I land it, the fight's over. You saw him do that in the rematch with Luis Ortiz, where it's like, you watch the fight, and it's like, what is Deontay doing? For like six, seven rounds, Deontay is just winging left hooks at, to the body occasionally, you know, lets a jab go here and there, but was ultimately doing really nothing. And he was down on the on the cards, and then he, he lands the right hand, the fight's over. Donaire did a version of that for many years. And it seems like, you know, in the Inouye fight, things started to flip for him. He saw that, he, I mean, he was forced to do things because for once, I think, or well, not for once, but for the first time in a very long time, Donaire had a guy just as dangerous as him in the ring with him. And so I think that, Part of the difference in the fight was Donaire landing that right hand. But I think the other thing is Donaire also realizing just how much bigger he was than Ubali, how much stronger he was than him, and also that his his speed is still insane. And he just started to make Ubali pay for all the mistakes he was making and being aggressive, which you know we haven't seen a, an aggressive Donaire too much over the course of his career. But man, when he is aggressive and starts to find those openings, I mean, the guy hits, like, it is incredible for the lower weight classes. Um, here's a question. What would you guys rather see next? Would you rather see him fight Inouye in a rematch, or would you rather see him fight the winner of Rigondeau and Casemiro? I would say Rigondeau-Casemiro. Why? I, I think that, the, you know, we've seen the Denaro Inouye fight very recently, and I, you know, I I don't think that Denaire would do any better than the first fight. And that I think that Inouye, this I think Inouye would be smarter this time. I think he would he would understand the danger, and I think that when he came in, maybe a bit more, bit more respecting a Denaire, I think that would be a bit why a bit of a easier fight for Inouye. I think, and I think that ultimately the the Casemiro Rigondeau fight. It's Casemiro's obviously a very entertaining fighter as well. You know, he's another guy who KOs a lot of people at the lower weight classes. But this, but on the other hand, interestingly enough, Rigo has very sneaky power as well. You know, I think Rigo recently has showed 
he's just looked like he, he's a man who does not give a single fuck. You know, I think that it would be a, it would be a rematch. You know, what almost probably nine years after the initial one with two guys who are, you know, Rico's in his forties. Donaire's getting very close to it. You know, nine years after a first match, you know, it would be very interesting because I think it would be so different. And really? it would be, I I think, I think it would. I think yeah, that. Be different, I think. I, I think, think that Daener ultimately has changed a lot less than Rigo, which I think is slightly funny because I think you would you would say that Daener's style would be the one that ages worse, but he's ultimately, you know, especially in that last fight, that looked very similar to like twenty twelve ish Daener. But Rigodeau's last fight looked very similar to that too. When Solis uh, hurt him, Rigodeau said "fuck this" and basically got on his bike for eleven rounds and decided that he was just like, "Nah, we are not going to engage." He also just fucking slumped him at one point. <laughs> that knockout was brutal. Like, I, wait, I don't even like remember it. this. It was. Yeah. It was. The seventh wasn't he hit him hard. I remember thinking this is dumb, and then Solis got up. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I I just remember all I remember from this fight is Rigando like gets hurt in the first round, and like he had that like old person falling down in slow motion type of I'm hurt, <laughs> and then I'll, and then the next twelve rounds were like literally Solis throwing a lot of punches. Rigando lands three or four really clean ones, and at the end of the fight, it's like yeah, that was. Kind of closer the same, than it needed to be. Oh uh, yeah, maybe maybe, maybe Donaire would cause them to go back to the um the old ways. Because it like the the Seha fight, I remember like that was nothing like an old Riga fight. No, no, no. Like that that was insane. It was like him and Lara had just had an agreement. You know, if called Cubans boring, <laughs> we'll go out and have two of the best fights of the year. God, both their all of their legs just broke down, and now they're just like forced to actually fight. <laughs> like, oh fuck! Also, one thing, one thing that would be interesting about the Rigo rematch is that it would be a, a, a weight lower, which ultimately I think would be funny, seeing as nine years later and they're both cutting more. They so they fought in two thousand and two thousand thirteen. I think it was thirteen against each other. If they fight next year, it would be, or I, I would assume that it probably have to be next year or late in the year. Let's just call it next year. Uh, that's yeah, nine years. What? I'll say old fighters usually need a while to recover. It'll be at earliest next year. Yeah. So imagine this: it's nine years after their first meeting. They've moved. Down, they're both almost or over forty years old. We have to believe that Rigando's over 40. I mean, he's billed as 40 years old box rec. Yeah, There's no was, fucking way. It's crazy. I literally, became a boxing, I literally became a boxing fan like within like a month of that fight. I saw like Dan Rayfield having it a draw and shitting on the fight. So I was like, oh, fuck watching this fight. Um, and then everyone was saying Daenerys was shot. And then here we are nine years later. I mean, they could still be shot. It's just like... A great fighter being shot is still pretty damn good, as we saw with Floyd Mayweather, uh, in the in the later part of his career. Um, Have you seen that one photo that's like, are they? Wow, they're so equally strong, or maybe they're both equally weak. What? I think at this point, they're... no, I'm just messing, honestly. But I agree overall that they both still have like a lot of like skill that's kind of transcended their age, and they're relying on that. Wait, did Greg just walk his joke back and then go right back on with his take? <laughs> Dude, I don't even have takes. I'm just, I'm just balling. I'm, <laughs> I'm busting. Never forget, though, that Rigando had that fight with Donaire, which I thought was a really fascinating fight. Very entertaining. Um, Rigando it got... It was bizarre. Like, it was a very strange fight. Yeah, they did it at... It, like, everything was weird about it. Like, it was at Radio City Music Hall. It was a music hall. It was a kind of a weird view. Uh, Rigando got dropped and then immediately come, come comes back and is like, yeah, why don't I just break your orbital bow now? <laughs> and then he <laughs> follows it up with a win over Joseph Agbeko in what is one of the worst... <laughs> or not, not worst, but least entertaining fights you'll ever watch... And on that undercard, 
James Kirkland and, uh, really just ruined Glenn Tapia's career uh, where Steve Smoger decided to let these guys box until somebody was in like double-digit brain cells count. Right. I'm, <laughs> is just punishing. I'm, oh fuck, I was saying that um, Mars ended up getting revenge for Unobjeco, but people shot on him for that. I, so I... I prefers to see him fight the winner of Rigondo Casimero. And I think, Stu, you make a really good point. The in-a-way fight, I think we know how it's going to go. Um, if you want to see that fight, and I'm not... Look, the, the cool thing here is that either of these outcomes is great. If he fights in-a-way again, while well, we sit with bated breath, waiting for one of them to knock the other one out. Because you have to imagine that after each guy has seen 12 rounds of the other, someone's power is going to prevail. Someone's going to figure out, okay, yeah, this is the mistake that he makes. I will make him pay. That's a great fight. And obviously, you know, Donaire fighting one of the top fighters in the division and certainly one of the best fighters in boxing, that is a great outcome. But on the other hand, the storyline of him getting revenge over Guillermo Rigondo nine years after the fact, I think that's a hard one to pass up. I, I do also think that... What, the way we're talking makes it sound like we're writing off Casimiro, which I don't think we are. Oh, I, was I think it's just that. a <laughs> I think it's just a Are you going to write him off? <laughs> well, Casimiro's yeah, uh, dangerous, dude. Yeah, I think I think, think Rigo's shown that he can get hit by stupid shots, and if someone can hurt you with shots like that, it's going to be a guy like Casimiro. Wait, Casimiro, uh, the guy who throws stupid shots, is fighting a guy vulnerable to hitting, getting hit <laughs> yeah, with stupid yeah. shots? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, is there? there a, the kind of dude to I beat think he, he's sorry. He's the kind of dude to lose to Casimiro would be honestly. Right. I I think Casimiro is the type of dude that's going to yolo it and definitely find an opening on Rigando, or he is going to look stupid for twelve rounds. Well, I I think the thing is, is what what could happen is sometimes Rigo gets hit. And then just decides, going actually, I'm just going to punch you in the face even harder. <laughs> like he did that against Solis, he did that against Seha, and like, he like, like, like he just he's got old man strength that he only unleashes when someone hits him. He's Wait, got ice marrow beats Rigo and Denaire couldn't. Does that mean like? I feel like Denaire in some ways is a much more refined Casimero. Like, so does that mean just throwing random bullshit works better than like uh, trying to be technical? And uh, maybe. I feel like when you're dealing with someone like Rigano, you just kind of have to just fuck skill and just try to bully the dude. Well, I mean, I guess that's kind of what Lomachenko did. He just styled on him. He's just like, all right, well, I mean, you're not going to throw a lot of punches. I will. And you can block as many as you want, but at some point, you're just going to you're you're gonna give up. You're not going to want to deal with this. I mean, Rigano is a guy that, like, smokes Marlboro 100s. He, he does not have time for this shit. And that's why he probably punches so hard. I think, like, Casimiro, though, versus Donaire is, like, sneakily the best fight here because you, in a way, is very skilled, and we we know that, and that could lead us to a fight between two skilled fighters, and we know that that's, there's a level of entertainment that you get with that fight. Cool. I'm not saying that there's anything bad about that, but that's kind of, like, we know what we're going to get. We also know what we could get with Rigando. We know that either Rigando could be Rigando and do 12 rounds of like, all right, well, yeah, we just wasted our time. Or he decides, like, I will old man strength you and he knocks Donaire out or something. Maybe. But Casimiro versus Donaire has potential to be like two rounds of absolute chaos. Because I don't think Casimiro is going to come in the fight and, and try to like set up anything. I don't think he's going to try to out jab Donaire. I think he'd be like, you know go to hell and, and then also factor in in a way is a really cool guy you know he's not like he ain't trash talking he ain't doing all this um ringando is not that way either he doesn't even talk casimero's the type to come in and just you know call donair like a motherfucker during the press conference he's that type of guy and like that juxtaposed to who we know donair to be is just could be a really wild matchup with these two guys. I mean, overall, I'm like happy with these three options for him. I, I don't think you could go wrong with any of these. So who do you pick? Like, what is your ideal fight here? 
Um, I'd say Daenerys Rigendal. I feel like that's the fight I'm the least sure about who wins because I feel like you know we we've already seen the Nawi fight. Like I'll watch it again happily, but you know I'm I'm okay if it doesn't happen again because it could always disappoint. Um, and the Casimero fight. Um, I think it's a good fight, but I just see it very hard for Casimero to beat Daenerys. But I definitely could think he could beat Rigo. Also, I think that fight has the biggest size difference. Casimero is a very small guy. Let's see, how tall is mm -hmm. he? He's a three-weight champion, right? Yeah. Yeah, Casimero's came up. Like, he's... He's five he, foot I think, four. I think Casimero might have even fought light fly. Casimero has never... He's fought at... Yeah, he's fought at 108. Yeah, he's been around, but... I mean, he fought... Who he fought? I'm not ruined wrong. He fought, like, a million years ago. Um, yeah, a bunch of those guys at the lower weight classes. But yeah, I'd say I'm the least interested, though. I do like the all Filipino clash angle. Like, I think the buildup will be fun. I just don't think the fight will deliver be beyond, I guess, Daenerys destroying well, I, I think it would deliver, but I think it was, it's like, would be a very predictable delivery. You know, I think of, of Daenerys winning after Casimero, you know. <laughs> Just fling some stuff at him. After Casimero unloaded 55 haymakers <laughs> in the first round, yeah. in the second round he came no, out, Donaire no. just one-punched him. Yeah, pre that pretty much. <laughs> if, if, if Casimero can't like make any impact with his wild punches, I think Rigondeau is going to absolutely murder him in the ring. Yeah, I think there's definitely some potential for Rigo to serious like see it beat Casimiro clearly just i'm just trying to keep my expectations low because the more the lower the expectations are the better rigan yeah rigan rigo is just a guy a man you can't predict yeah like when, when they try to put him on like that kodo undercard and they're like oh he's gonna give us some a masterpiece and then suddenly you've put him against seha everyone thought that was he was just gonna like box him and it was like a fucking classic I'd re I also remember the um the ward Kovalev one. They put him on the undercard, and he just punched someone after the bell. <laughs> uh, don't don't forget um breaking Jazza Dickens' jaw. Don't forget they put him on an FS1 card. I think that was on the Caleb Plant uh Uzkategi undercard. He just fucking knocked a guy out real quick in the first round. Um. Working jaw thing people would say before the Lomachenko fight. <laughs> it's gonna fuck up Lomachenko's jaw. Oh no. I mean anybody who actually thought that Rigando had a shot against Lomachenko, like shame on you. Uh anyway, I think we have I, I think the other option, and I wish this was a realistic option, but I'd love to see Donaire versus Mares at long last. These are these are two guys that were like the Mayweather Pacquiao of the lighter weight classes. For a really long time. Uh, you know, today we have this landscape amongst boxing fans where it's like, oh, well, the PBC people versus the top ranked people and, you know, all this stuff. Well, before that, there was like, there was a couple of those in boxing, obviously Mayweather versus Pacquiao, but also there was Donaire versus Mares. And you had these two guys who were separated by networks and by promotional companies. And that fight got close a couple of times, but never really delivered. And, you know, it looks like Abner Mars walks around at 150, and probably it's not feasible that he'd ever go to 118 at this point. But I would love to see that fight happen, um, even yeah, if I know Donaire's going to win. Yeah, it's in those early 2000s, like, fights that got away with, like, um, Gamboa uh, versus Juan Ma and all those. You know, hindsight, um, that was a great fight. Gamboa versus Wanma, but like, I think seeing how those two careers played out, I think it's very clear what would have happened. Shout out to, uh, do you guys remember when Wanma came back and just got absolutely destroyed? They were trying to make that fight like as of a year ago. I remember Bob mentioning. Oh yeah, you're it. right. <laughs> that's that's how I remember it was even a thing in the first place. <laughs> There's also God uh, and maybe Gamboa made the past tank. They could have done that. If Gamboa gets tank gets past, oh, got past tank. I was thinking if Tank gets back past Barrios, he could fight Wanma. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, okay, let's talk about the undercard. Subriel Matias on the undercard. He forced a corner stoppage after eight absolutely brutal rounds against Batirjan Jukambayev. I mean, Greg, was this fight like almost a little too violent to enjoy? Yeah, honestly, I feel like maybe because of like the history, but even otherwise, I feel like these kind of um, accumulative damage fights to me are always a little hard to watch because there's just so much action, so much um, pain from both guys. And it's not just like a one punch knockout type thing. You see both guys like being worn down, like mentally and physically. But even so, like it's a fight you have to appreciate on some level. I thought that, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. When we watch Matias, um, there's always going to be in the background, I think, for people that know what's happened in the past. And the thing is, you know what happened in the past, you know, and obviously if you don't know what we're talking about, Subriel Matias was in a fight with Maxim Dadashev, and it looked exactly like the fight last night. You know, you had Matias, you know, he was he was taking some, some punches, but he the sustained punishment that he was dishing out over the course of the 10 rounds that he fought Dadashev. Ultimately, you know, Dadashev suffered, um, I think it was a brain hemorrhage and, you know, he lost his life. And you look at these fights with Matias going forward and it's like nothing has changed. You, it's, it's easy to see how somebody would be a little squeamish watching these fights. But at the same time, you know, that's really confirmation bias. And what we actually did have was a very good action fight last night. Um, I don't know if Matisse is actually good, though. I mean, do, do either of you feel strongly here about where Subriel Matias is at in the grand scheme of boxing? I think he's one of those guys who you, you, you aren't expecting him to go to the very top, you know. But he's, he's good, you know. He's going to become a tricky opponent for someone in the future. But I don't think, he, you know, he's destined for the, the very, very top. I do think that um, he had a loss last year. And I do think that was kind of influenced by, you know, the, the, how the Dadashev fight slightly looked. He looked far more tentative in it at points. It looked like he, he was maybe not quite scared, but, you know, a bit reluctant to let go. And I think that was that was definitely gone on Saturday. I think that that, that he's he's definitely at least got over that kind of mental demon, which you know would obviously be very tough to do. But I don't think he's going to make it to the very top. I don't think he can go that far. I, I think I, he's go on, Greg. Go ahead. No, you can go. Okay. Um, I was going to say that I agree overall on this, this talent to me and um. As a fighter, I think he's decent at best. But I think he is a bit lucky that at 140, there's not... Well, I mean, Josh Taylor presumably is going to go vacate. You're going to have four vacant belts. And, like, who else is honestly that good at the division? Like, I think it's pretty likely that Matias makes his way into a title shot and wins, honestly. But can he be a guy who, like, holds on to belt for a while and, like, you know, starts making noise in that sense? No, I, I really don't think so. I, I think that he has an interesting combination of attributes that he brings into the ring. And so I think if we add, like the, if we add them all up, we are dealing with a pretty good fighter. But individually, I think when you isolate these, these attributes, very good fighters should be able to exploit them. Um, could if Josh Taylor was willing and thus far in his career, I don't know that he's ever like fully committed to this. And I think he he'd be even better than he actually is if he did. But if Josh Taylor wanted to commit to being a sharpshooter and really focus on counterpunching, Matias would have no shot against him. But the fact that Josh Taylor can get dragged into these fights and um, you know get into the inside and try to get rough with guys, which you know he he can do. He's pretty good at that. But, like, Subriel Matias is a guy that I don't know that I want my fighter gambling with him on the inside. Uh, the the amount of punishment that he's able to take while still dishing it out with that sort of sneaky power where it doesn't look like he's got a ton of leverage on his shots and yet round six comes around and these guys look like they're in the 10th round. I think that speaks to something that Matias is able to, to do in fights that not a lot of guys are able to do. 
but I don't really see him as a top tier guy. You know, you, you talked about Josh Taylor potentially vacating the titles and, you know, that opens up the possibility for Matias to get a title shot. And, you know, should that play out, should Josh Taylor decide to move up and all those titles get, get vacated? Um, you know, Jake Donovan tweeted out that Matias and his promoter had made it clear that the plan is to fight for a title and they want it hopefully by the end of the year. And there's an eliminator between Lewis Ritson and Jeremiah Ponce. And then the they would face the winner of that fight. Presumably that would be Lewis Ritson. Although I don't think it's a very good good idea to bet on Lewis Ritson winning a fight that's beyond domestic level. But like, would you want to see that next for him? Or do you think maybe Matias's maybe the, the route to take with him is to just put him in fights with other names and just keep seeing what you got with him? And the title will eventually come. Uh, I, go ahead. I th- I think in this situation you 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 don't you don't want to take a chance like that when a belt you know ultimately the belts are falling from a guy who's got them all down into what's a very shallow division you know like the fact that Lewis Ritson's even being considered for a final eliminator says a lot about it but you you've you've given you've got given a chance like that. I think you've got to take it before someone else comes along and and gets that belt. And like there, the even guys like Jose Zapata might be out of Matthias's reach. You know, I think I think that Zapata this would be a very good fight, but I think Zapata probably wins it. You know, just just that kind of level of guy. Zapata yeah. versus oh. Matthias. Wow, that'd be an exciting one. That would. I know well the Zapato we saw this past weekend. Ah man, that is a rough fight. Really rough fight. Yeah, I think overall the whole thing with Matias is I think for Matias to be good, he almost needs his opponent to agree to it. He needs his opponent to agree to the war. Um, because I, I don't know how he'll be able to initiate a war if, he, if someone like Taylor Zapata is playing it really carefully. I, I think Pedraza, even I Pedraza, maybe... but Maybe a few years ago, I would maybe think about Zabeta playing it safe, but after that Baron check fight, I don't think so. Yeah, that's the thing I was going to say. That what bodes well for Matthias is that you have this guy Bronjic, who's basically like, I don't think I don't think he's better than Matthias, and he basically tries to do what Matthias does. And then Zabeta and Taylor both gave Bronjic his kind of fight. They both let it be way closer than it needed to be. So. It's possible they get wrapped into war with Matias for sure. So I think that does bode well for him. But yeah, honestly, as, as far as fighting Ritson, I think it's an awful fight. I don't, you know, he'd destroy the guy. He'd probably catch another body. But <laughs> honestly, honestly, I'd rather him fight someone that I think is a competitive fight. I'm, I'm not judging him for, like Stu said, taking a shot at a vacant title, but like, you know, I'd rather him fight a Robert Easter, um, Granados, um, even holy man, you, <laughs> Santiago, um, who, you just Broner, fought Santiago, Russell. Oh, shit. Sorry, I mean, Gary Antoine just fought Santiago. You l- yes. let the guy, geez, he's got battered. I, I think um, the fight yeah. with Lewis Ritson or Jeremiah Ponce is like the IBF should be like, yeah, we probably don't need to do this fight. Ritson is not very good. How do you even come into this? Who's pushing for Ritson? Is does he have like political oh, leverage? Have you do you you don't remember the twenty eighteen Ritson hype train when he KO'd that, that was a good month. <laughs> he KO'd like three three British domestics back to back and suddenly he was he was gonna beat Mikey Garcia. Sure. I'm pretty sure even Babs is hyped. I don't know. There's something like no, wholesome about it. There's no shot that Babs was hyped. No shot Babs was hyped. I mean, Babs is like insufferable about British boxing. Imagine if I'm right and Ritson was the one Brit that Babs is just like, whoa, this guy's good. (laughs) No shot. What are you guys talking about? I, I think that. I mean, you make a good point that it's probably better for him to play the, the the title eliminator game and, you know, try to position himself to get a world title. But, like, 
I don't know. I feel like Matias is a guy that would probably be. It, it's probably better served. Um, not, you know what? He probably needs a title, actually. Like, if we think about the odds of Matias actually being somebody who can carry a card as a main eventer, I think the odds are incredibly low for that. So it's probably best if this guy has a title, and at least you have that to his name. Uh, on the undercard, also in the 140-pound division, Gary Antoine Russell. He took the next big step as a prospect, and uh, in the toughest fight of his career, he went past the, you know, he lasted longer than he had ever lasted in a fight. He had never gone past four rounds. He went six rounds with Giovanni Santiago before, um, you know, really beating the hell out of Santiago and forcing not just the corner, but Santiago to say, yeah, that's enough. So you guys buying stock in Gary Antoine Russell? Yeah, I'm buying plenty, honestly. They're the whole, I'm buying stock in the whole Russell family. They're like the reverse of the Smiths, like, Talented, but underappreciated. And so, yeah, he looked exceptional last night. And I feel like he deserves to be at least seriously considered now as a prospect. As a prospect or as one of the top prospects? I think you yeah, mean, the, that's a top. What about I you, think Stu? It, I think it, it's very tough to say anything but positive things. After a fight like that, a guy, you know, Giovanni Santiago, who, you know, he had a very close fight, you know, that some people thought he beat Broner uh, just, uh, what, three months ago, I think it was. So when, you know, a guy who had 13 pro fights, he's 24, comes out and just wrecks him. Because like, it wasn't even just beating him, it was, you know, it was a beat down. He, he destroyed him and you come out like that, you've got to be impressed. I just, I just think you've just got to hope he isn't, Fighting on his brother's schedule. <laughs> uh, it yeah, I think like... it was... Go on, Greg. I, I was going to say, I think it's not even just that he destroyed him, but he destroyed him without getting hit back. And he just showed a lot of really promising fundamentals. Like, you know, shots just looked really stiff. It, it reminded me of Shakur Stevenson, honestly. The way his shots were always keeping Santiago at like a safe lens. Um, he'd pick it, he'd always be moving his head to like a safe place after he drew, like just very responsible fighter. Yeah. I liked what I saw from Gary Antoine. I would buy a ton of stock in him. I think he's got a lot of things going for him. And I, I understand too. You have to like, always keep this in mind that when you're evaluating a prospect, like anything can happen, you know, how often have we seen fighters that look great and they wind up falling apart once they get to that next level? But in terms of the boxes that you want checked off and even checking these boxes is no guarantee, but at least checking the boxes leads you to believe that there are big things in sight for certain fighters. There are a lot of boxes that got checked off last night with Gary Antoine. Um, I mean, he, he showed power, he showed speed. I mean, he. I think that's one of the things that I ain't seeing people talk about today that needs to be talked about. He is fast. And not just fast with hand speed, but he the his positioning and where like him get moving from spot to spot in the ring, he is unbelievably fast. Um the punch selection was beautiful. We saw defense and, and we saw what I think is a, a really an art of boxing that is I don't know, you don't see guys really develop this over the course of their careers, but that is the ability to seamlessly switch between offense and defense. We saw that last night from Gary Antoine Russell. It was very nice. Uh, so yeah, I'm definitely buying stock in Gary Antoine. Uh, what'd you guys think about Devin Haney? He won a unanimous decision over Jorge Linares, but in the 10th round at the closing moments of the round, he was hurt. And, um, now, he didn't get dropped or anything. He didn't, like, the, the referee didn't have to pick him up. You know, it wasn't hurt like that. But clearly, he was affected by a shot that Linares had landed. And then, for the remainder of the fight, basically fought like he had not recovered. And there's been some criticism over Haney. There's also been a lot of um, white knighting over... I don't know if that's the right phrase there. I'm just trying to use one of Stu's words. Uh, but there's been a lot of defense of Haney that's saying like, well, he boxed for 20, 10 rounds really well, and then he got hurt. That should not, getting hurt at the end of that fight should not invalidate the previous 10 rounds. 
So where do you guys sit on the situation? Like, do you think it's unfair to criticize him today? Honestly, I don't think it's getting hurt that really bothered me that much. It's a few other things. It's why he got hurt. It's because he was being too predictable. You know, first he was just trying to jab up Linares without adding anything in, mixing up his speed. So then Linares began countering him. He realized he had to make an adjustment, started coming inside, but then he'd just come inside and try the same combo every time. So, you know, he got timed. So, like, to me, that's much more concerning than getting hurt. The fact that he got hurt by something that was easily avoided if, you know, he varied his rhythm at all. Not to mention his recovery was way more concerning as well, or his lack of recovery. What about you, Stu? I think one thing is that Something like that always brings up the point that it's very hard to accurately judge how defensively sound a prospect is at times. You know, I think it's something that because that the art of defense of boxing is so different at a top level versus people who vary their shots, people who move well, and the people that Haney has fought so far were you know, you can be predictable in defence and get away with it. And I think that there's a lot of the time there's this, this um, I don't I don't want to say confusion because it's a bit condescending, but, you know, this mistaking almost a guy being tentative and a guy being careful in his early prospect fights and looking defensively sound because he's not putting that much out there and versus actually being defensively sound when it comes to, you know, a top, top level. Yeah, I agree with that. There's a lot of conflating of those two. Like, um, you, then you, you look at a lot of people who like get because they're kind of, I guess, slicker and more defensive. People think they have like amazing fundamentals, but a lot of them don't. Yeah, I think um, Tevin Farmer. You know, not not putting Devin Adi at the same level as Tevin Farmer, but I think it's. I was thinking of Demetrius Andre, the yeah. fair shout. Wow. Well, <laughs> three, we've just we've just named three Tayson fighters. Wow. <laughs> Um, I don't know what you guys are doing there, but all right. Uh, but no, I think with I think also another thing is people conflate um technique with ring IQ. Like I think Haney's technique looks great, but does he use it well? Um, I I don't even think his you know, his corner even seems critical of him and want him to like be more creative and more varied. And so I, I think he has the technique. I just don't think he's using it well. I think. One of the issues I have with that, De- look, Devin Haney did box well for 10 rounds. Um, but I feel like he's fought unnecessarily defensive against fighters that I didn't think had any shot at beating him. And it's why he's earned this reputation as being a boring fighter. And he's 100% earned it. And I saw some people trying to say that that was an entertaining fight last night. I, I really don't think so. I wasn't that entertained by it. Uh, I, it's nice to see different wrinkles for from Devin Haney, sure. But was I entertained by that? Not necessarily. Um, would I ever watch it again? No. And so, but he's fought so defensively over the course of his career. And it almost seems like if you see what happened in that 10th round and the way he fought afterwards, it it's like, okay, well, that is the reason why he's fought that way. He fights that way because maybe he just is adverse to being hit because he's not out here trying to get hurt and wobbled by these guys. I mean, it totally seemed like that for me from the way that he fought that fight. It reminds me of Tony Yoka syndrome where Yoka, you know, hasn't been down as a pro, hasn't been knocked out. But the way he fights, the way he shells up every time he gets touched by a punch, it makes people wonder what he's hiding, you know, like bad chin bad stamina bad mentality so like it's it's not not an indictment but it's definitely a question mark that you know Haney's gonna have to answer when he steps up i am just real like i you saw the tweets from a lot of fighters and a lot of times you know we are just like neither of us is a professional fighter certainly not like a world champion level i mean unless you guys have been lying to me this whole time but it was interesting to see the reaction that fighters had uh, from Tiafimo to Ryan Garcia. It seemed like everybody saw something in, in Haney last night where they were just like not sold. Um, do you think that that is an indictment 
on what we saw from Devin Haney last night? I don't think it's an indictment, so to speak, but I think if you're a guy like Tiafimo or, you know, even Ryan Garcia coming off a big knockout against Luke Campbell, you look at a guy getting hurt by Linares, who isn't a soft hitter, but he doesn't, like, hammer people. You see him getting hurt by that, and you just think, well, I hit harder than that. I could hit him as hard, even harder than that. And I wouldn't be so far down in the fight, in the fight at that point that there was no chance of me winning. So I think that if you're Team Female or Ryan Garcia, you're, you're thinking, you know, I can beat him just, just by doing the same thing as Linares, but hitting harder or doing it earlier or not dropping so many rounds. I think that's yeah, fair. I, think I was going to say, I think it's a bit unlucky for Haney that I feel like 135 is usually not a division that you need these kind of physical attributes for, but then you look at all the other top 135 guys, you know, Ryan Garcia, uh, Tiafimo Lopez, Tank Davis, they're all just really murderous punchers that aren't really even that common at the weight. Well, so yeah. I think it's definitely tricky for someone like Haney where he doesn't, you don't necessarily need like amazing power or a chin to beat people like that, but you need to be able to outskill them to a huge degree and, it's going to be a tough ask because, you know, Tank and Tiffimo are very skilled and even Ryan's learning. I think even, you know, to further your point, even the guys who are not at that top level still possess a lot of power. You look at a guy like Richard Comey, that guy can punch. Vasily Lomachenko can punch. Um, so those are all the top guys that you're going to run into at 135. And if uh, he's reacted the way that he's reacted against Linares. Um, and, and that is also like a concern. And, you know, for for the record, I think I'm higher on Devin Haney than most people. I think his skill is, you know, really, he's really skilled. Um, do I particularly enjoy watching him fight? Well, not really, but I think he's very skilled. But the way Ryan Garcia recovered from that knockdown against Luke Campbell does not resemble in the slightest the way Devin Haney was or or had recovered from being hit by Linares. And that, to me, is one of the bigger concerns I have about him going forward. You know, I thought if you'll if I looked at the the guys at 135, Ryan Garcia, Devin Haney, Tiafimo, um, who would be the best of those three? And to me, it's like clearly Devin Haney, well, at least before. But like, you know, we're seeing the the step forward that Tiafimo's taken in his career. And we'll see how he looks against Cambosos. We've seen how Ryan's began to develop. And now we're seeing Devin Haney show signs, but also, you know, it's one step forward, one step back with him. That to me is a little concerning. But at, at, at the minimum, at least, you know, the thing we could say at the end of this is that, well... These are 22, 23-year-old guys. They've got a lot of time to develop. Yeah, I think that's the first time that Haney's ever had to take like any sort of serious shot. And, you know, he dealt with it awfully, but I think the, the silver lining is you'll, you'll deal with it better next time. You know, you can't deal with it worse than that. <laughs> so so, so well, the next time, you know, next time he gets hit, you know, he's been there before. He'll, he'll have some kind of instinct on what to do. It won't be as shocking because that's that's ultimately what it looked like partially for Haney. He looked shocked by it, you know. He didn't he didn't know what to do. And when once you've been in that situation, loads of times, you you ultimately can only get you just get better at it and better at it. So, you know, I think it's it, it's it, we'll wait and see how he responds the next time he gets out and if it's if he's improved that. Yeah, I think Haney's both shown he has a high ceiling, but he's also shown he has a low floor. And I think it's anyone's guess on, you know, how much of his potential he realizes. Um, all right. Well, we are going to leave it there. We talked a bit about the Floyd Mayweather-Logan Paul exhibition. I think we'll probably do another episode later in the week where we discuss that more in full. Um, we could talk about John Pascal doing uh, testing positive for performance-enhancing drugs. But we would not like to get um, threatened with legal action like one very prominent boxing writer did. Uh, Stu, Greg, thanks for coming on. Always nice to talk to you guys and have you on. 
If you guys are wondering, no problem. Like, there's a bit at the beginning, or <laughs> about 20 minutes prior to this point where you're hearing this, there was a, maybe an awkward, we're going to censor some things out, and it was kind of awkward. If you want to know what that is, we were recording, and we were just having our conversation, and then somebody jumped into the call and started talking and asking us questions, which was fine. Uh, the only problem is uh, that they wanted to talk about things that we were not talking about. So we've edited all of that out. Um, it, I don't think it would be interesting anyway because all Stu and Greg did is just laughed. So if you want... <laughs> release the full cut. No, I'm not releasing the full cut. No, we don't even have this person's permission. He had no clue what was going on. But he did ask boxing questions at least. You know, It could have been a lot worse. Uh, Are we not going to talk about Android Quigley? No. Uh, just really quickly talk about it then. What do you I want to talk about? That headline. Please read the headline. That, the headline where if I, um, it's, it's literally just says, give me crack from emotional Jason Quigley <laughs> to Boo Boo Android. I think it was meant to say, give me a crack at the title, but <laughs> lost in translation. <laughs> give me crack. Crap. Um, right. Uh. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, sorry, this was not the long episode that we typically do. That unfortunately was an issue with audio. And as you can see, we're still going to clean up Greg's audio by the next time he's on the podcast. He should have like a full on um, big boy mic. But until then, I hope you guys enjoy this. If you enjoy the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash Sunday Puncher. You get more stuff over there. Uh, as well as access to the chat, which, um, you know, you can find Greg and Josh, or um, what's your name again? Stu. <laughs> you can find Greg and Stu over in the chat. Josh is another one of our friends. Uh, so I really appreciate you guys listening, and we will be back very soon.